everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. I hope you're doing well. Today I wanted to do just another sort of uh, notes show, some current events. I will talk a little bit of Bible prophecy at the end. The first thing in my notes is one of these food conspiracies, and it's a new one to me. Um, and when I think of food conspiracies, I think of like three or four of the big ones. And these are ones that I've talked about a lot over the years, things like aspartame, which is the artificial sweetener, which has this unbelievably crazy backstory uh, and is totally dangerous. And uh, anyway, I can go on about all these things. We're going to try not to. Uh, things like fluoride in the water, which I, um, again, could go on forever about that and how crazy that is. Um, vaccines, of course. And, you know, I could go on. Monsanto's got a whole like subcategory of food conspiracies that uh, have to do with them. But, um, and leaky gut was probably the latest one that I feel passionate about, almost passionate enough to do a documentary because I think so many people have leaky gut. And just because I mentioned it, let me quickly say that leaky gut usually happens when something gets off in your uh, gut biome. Typically you'll have an overgrowth of yeast or something like that, which uh, will eat little tiny micro holes in your uh, uh, large intestines, which is where you absorb your vitamins. And what happens is a person that has these uh, uh, minute holes, sometimes it's called increased intestinal permeability, uh, They what they eat basically goes right into their bloodstream. And so their immune system is constantly have to, having to deal with all these food particles and stuff. And so people rapidly develop food allergies and all kinds of stuff. And eventually it causes autoimmune diseases because your immune system is just tired of having to deal with basically going to war every time you eat a meal. And it's compounded by the person typically also being um, deficient in vitamins because the gut is where you absorb, I think it's like 70, 75% of all the nutrients from your food. And if you take supplements, that's where they get uh, transferred and made use of. And if you have this intestinal permeability, it's basically you're, you're being, de you're deficient in all kinds of stuff too, which has its own sort of effects. You know, if you don't have enough various things, B12 or whatever, you're going to have separate issues just because you're deficient. And that's compounded, of course, with all the inflammation and the immune problems and everything else. It's just, it's this thing that manifests in a lot of different ways with people, but, um, but it's a big deal. So that's one. But this new one is, I think it trumps almost all of them because it's affecting us all and it's a big deal. And it is seed oils or vegetable oils. These are things like canola oil, soybean oil, corn oil, cottonseed oil, sunflower oil, peanut oil, sesame oil. You see it on the back of literally almost everything that you buy on the grocery store. And all that stuff is brand new and it's kind of lying to you. It's really not a sunflower oil or, uh, you know, Crisco is probably the first mar thing that hit the market. And it's actually a byproduct of cotton seeds. So after the cotton harvest, they couldn't do anything with this sort of byproduct of cotton. And they developed this method of extracting it that has to do with major high temperatures. I mean, it's a major factory situation that has to produce this oil. And at first they were just using it for engine lubrication and things like that. But eventually the soap company said, hey, why don't we market this cottonseed oil extract and they called it Crisco and they had this uh, massive, massive uh, uh, campaign, advertising campaign and told people they were smart and cool if they ate this instead of butter and 
So anyway, people started eating it and it started with Crisco, but now it's literally in everything. I was at the grocery store the other day and you can't pick up a package that doesn't have this stuff like entirely made of it. And even like supposedly healthy or keto stuff, I had these Atkins bars and they're basically constructed out of these things. But I don't think, I think that these are the primary cause of obesity. And I think it's the primary cause of heart disease. I think it's the primary cause of diabetes. I am absolutely convinced after watching these uh, these videos that especially the charts that show the correlation and you know correlation does not necessarily imply causation or however that goes but you can see you know look at diabetes on a chart and look at heart disease on a chart look at obesity on the chart and it, it just tracks perfectly with the consumption of seed oils even not that far back i mean i think we were consuming a pretty good amount by the 70s but from the 70s to now it just was a straight line and, and it's just the same line as obesity. It's the same line as heart disease and diabetes and all these other things. And there's really good cellular reasons for why it does it. I mean, you can't get rid of this stuff for like four years or something like that. It's a crazy, it does crazy things to your cells, mostly because of this oxidizate, oxidizate, it's very oxidizing of your cells. And it itself is incredibly unstable for that reason in this process they make it. And it gets crazy crazier unstable when you put it in high heats like every single restaurant now that fries anything is frying it in these oils and that's like um i mean you need to watch why that's bad i mean it is causing these things that are highly associated with cancers are off the charts when you fry them at those high heats so cancer i think is a big cause of this i know i'm overstating it I saw somewhere on Twitter, somebody had said, gosh, I mean, it seems like everything is caused by seed oils. I'm not going to be surprised if somebody says like seed oils did 9-11. It's that all encompassing how this might be the biggest health blunder of all time. And the history of it is staggering. So the process itself was invented basically by Procter & Gamble, which was a soap company. And they invented this process to make these uh, fats soluble for, for soap. And at some point or another, they decided to just give that to humans to eat, despite the fact that they were using it for like engine lubrication and stuff before that. In any case, so once they came out with these advertising campaigns telling people how, you know, if they eat Crisco, they're going to be super awesome and healthy and, and, and high class and all the th other stuff, people really started doing it. And so by the 50s, people had been eating Crisco for a while and we started to get completely new diseases in the 50s, most notably in heart attacks. And this is something that you can absolutely show. We did not deal with any heart attacks in any major way before uh, basically tracking with the consumption of these seed oils. And it wasn't a misdiagnosis or anything. They've got ways to sort of determine, no, people really weren't dying from heart attacks until then. And one way to see that demonstrated in psychology is that in 1955, Eisenhower had the, the president had a heart attack and was out of office for 10 days and the country totally freaked out. And they just didn't know what is this heart attack? What has to do with it? And people had started, already started to notice that heart attacks were happening, right? But, you know, the president having one sort of made it a real, it's kind of like Tom Hanks getting COVID, right? So now we're all got COVID because Tom Hanks had it. So, so people freaked out. The next day they came out and had a solution for it. Everybody needed a solution. The next day it came out when they told everybody the solution was that people were eating too many fats like eggs and, and meats and things like that. A theory, by the way, that 
is completely rejected nowadays. I don't know if you know this, but they used to say, oh, you can't eat that many eggs because it'll it'll mess up your heart or whatever. Even the official, you know, American Heart Association no longer says that. It's a completely debunked idea. But yet the next day they told everybody that that was the problem. And the solution was Crisco, basically. Polysaturated fats. That's that's what everybody needed to do. They stopped, need, need to stop using butter and start using Crisco. They had this telethon or something. I can't exactly remember the details, but they had this telethon, which they basically raised all this money for this brand new thing, the American Heart Association, which became overnight, had millions of dollars. And the whole concept was that the American Heart Association would tell everybody that Crisco was good and butter was bad, which was funded, interestingly enough, by Procter & Gamble. So Procter & Gamble gives makes the American Heart Association a thing. And the American Heart Association's basically only thing was, hey, butter is bad and Crisco is good, which ironically is the it institutionalized uh, 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 fat. There's this interesting article I was just reading how a U.S. president having a heart attack caused the worldwide obesity epidemic. And so after that, the we were off to the races. Once America said that what you need to do is eat Crisco and all the different polysaturated fats and avoid all the good fats, that's when it all started. And from there on, it got worse. But from the 70s on, it got super worse because that's when a lot of the processed foods started incorporating it into major situations. Fast food became a thing. Um, and it is crazy. These studies that you can see, like, okay, so they've done studies. And again, I, you really need to check out these YouTube videos of these presentations. They're like, you know, hours long or whatever, various ones you can see. Most of them are actually from a um, a, a company or whatever called the something like low carb down under, I guess they host a lot of speakers all the time or whatever, but, um, some of the studies are crazy. So they took mice and this is not a single study. This is done many, many, many times, uh, and shown in lots of different ways that you give mice the exact same diet. One gets one kind of oils and the other gets these polysaturated peanut oils or whatever. And the one that gets the polysaturated stuff, the, the, the seed oils, it just becomes this obese monster. And it, it, it's eating, they're eating the same calories, but one is not obese and one is crazy, unhealthily obese, despite eating the same calories. And I mean, they've shown this in rat studies, just triplicates about heart studies and all kinds of different things that this stuff is killing us. Um, anyway, I could go on about the, the history is crazy. Again, there's this guy named Ansel Keys who was the only reason that the American Heart Association or anybody else could even say these things like eggs are bad and, and, and Crisco is good. It was all Ansel Keys. And later on, it's kind of come out that Ansel Keys, the only reason that all the scientists just did whatever he said is because he was just this charismatic guy that's like, well, I don't want to go against what Ansel Keys has to say, you know? And despite, they did the, one of the best studies that it's ever been done on this. And it was done, it's a study you really couldn't do today because it was, they were, it was, it's immoral, but they did it on like thousands and thousands of people that were institutionalized and they gave one set this group and they did this other, other set, the, the, uh, other oils. And it went on for years and years and years. I mean, it was this beautifully designed study by Ansel Keys in order to prove his theory, but they never released the data until like 16 years later, they had to go find tapes in the basement and get it out because not only did it not prove his theory that he just got done telling America that we still completely apparently believe today, but it disproved it. The people, and here's the interesting thing. What eventually became the mantra is that eating these polysaturated fats will reduce your cholesterol which was technically true, it would slightly reduce your cholesterol, 
But what it wouldn't do is have any effect on your death because all these studies repeatedly, not just this study, but all the other subsequent studies show that the group that had the seed oils were dying at massive cancer rates and heart, uh, heart attack rates. The, basically, the, the dying level of the seed oil groups were just off the charts compared to the other one. But they would say, ah, well, you know, it's lowering their cholesterol and that's really what we're after. So we better not publish this study. And so it's crazy. It's crazy, it's crazy. So I'll say to you right now, you should check out this, this idea that vegetable oils are the cause of all of our ills in the modern society, and they are in absolutely everything. So, you know, check it out. You can go to YouTube. I'll also put it in the show notes. On the Russia-Ukraine thing, I think my take hasn't really changed much since last time. Whatever the outcome is, it's going to be more globalization. I really don't no, and can't quite tell. I do think that my, what I think I called my B, the second B option, which was that a Russia-China power block develops, seems to be more likely regardless of what is the outcome of the war. Um, I don't think Russia is going to like go away anytime soon. So unless there's some sort of uh, assassination or something like that, then it seems like that's the likely way that it will go, whether that is like a actual war alliance you know situation or not i can't quite tell yet i don't think anybody really can but i will say that um my thesis that the whether we are dealing with a peace agreement or all-out war the conclusion is more globalism i was just thinking about it in terms of a uh, nuclear weapon and how nuclear weapons themselves are like one of the best arguments that they will make for a one world government, right? I mean, if you could get one to go off, right? If you were the World Economic Forum or whoever is in charge of the World Economic Forum, then you could use that greatly to your benefit, right? You could be like, this is why we must have a global government. Because if, if you had one global government, right? Then then who would be bombing who? I mean, we're all one big happy family. Who is going to bomb anybody if we're all the same thing? So it's a, it's a major argument that I think one of these days they're going to make. I don't think that we're there yet because I do think that it, it, if you look at 1984, and I, I keep going back to 1984 because it seems more likely the trajectory that we're on, um, they were, you know, part of the ethos was, hey, uh, we were always at war with Eurasia or Oceania, and the idea was that, that you would have to have double think and, oh, I guess we were never at war with Oceania. We were always at war with Eurasia. But the fact is that they, my, my point is that they were at war with somebody, always. We were always at war with so-and-so because war is one of the things that makes it imperative to do exactly what the government says because, after all, we're at war, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's part of that. But, you know, in developing that power block, all that to say that I don't know if the, the first order that we go into here, whatever that is, the next thing, the next globalist piece that happens, if that actually ends up incorporating Russia and China. Though I will say, you have got to listen to James Corbett's recent podcast. Uh, I think he calls it like shocking document about Justin Trudeau or something, but it's sort of a... Uh, 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 sleight of hand thing where he talks about it as if it's Justin Trudeau, but then the big reveal is that it's really Russia and China that said all this stuff. And the point is that uh, Russia and China are totally all in 
on the globalist ideas. Every globalist uh, world economic thing, Russia and China is just absolutely signed on board with, talking about how we need the UN to be uh, terrorist police and stuff like that. Which, by the way, I was thinking, you know, the UN being a terrorist police is sort of the perfect thing. You know, I, th I was talking before or the last episode about how the world government really needs a, a world uh, army, but really what they need is a world police force because one of the biggest challenges with um, totalitarianism on a global scale or really a small scale is how do you get the local people to imprison your local friends or whatever for, for having wrong think. Now in the Soviet Union, they did it mostly, I think, because people were just so dirt poor that to have a job of any kind, especially to have the sort of authority and privilege and whatever contrasted with the absolute destitution of the population was something in and of itself to attain, you know, strive for. So you would gladly, uh, you know, imprison your neighbor if you got to have eat and feed your family, you know, eating and feed your family being the, the greatest good in that, in that, in that person's mind. So, uh, but my point is by a UN police force that in these documents that Corbett uh, brings out specifically is to deal with terrorism. It makes that sort of the job of the future. And of course they do kind of like, um, well, the ancient, uh, empires did, they would have, they would send these people to different places to police, uh, to police those local populations because they had no uh, familial or otherwise connection to those people. So they could just be total jackboots to that population because they, they didn't care about them or understand them or even speak their language probably. Um, so anyway, the point of that is to definitely go listen to that because Corbett, I think, hits every objection that one could have as to, no, Russia is the anti-globalists in this, in this scenario and all these other things. He goes through, I mean, it's really hard to argue with him. I know that uh, people talk about Klaus Schwab and his mentioning Vladimir Putin as part of the uh, young global leaders. And people say, oh, well, Putin couldn't have been a young global leader in the 1990s because he was like a couple, three or four or five years too old for it. But then Corbett points out all these you know, both Schwab and Putin himself saying like, hey, I met Schwab in 1992 when I was a cab driver and the guy basically made me who I am today. And, uh, you know, all this talk about how many times that they met and all this stuff and stuff. I mean, Putin is, I mean, he, he did the same thing with the vaccines. The Sputnik V is a viral vector vaccine like AstraZeneca. In fact, the company that makes AstraZeneca and that factory makes the Sputnik V and it's run by the same guy who actually is a World Economic Forum, a Russian guy who's, uh, I think he used to be Putin's chief of staff or whatever. I mean, the ties go super, super deep. And so the, the objection is, well, how come the whole world is mad at Vladimir Putin and the World Economic Forum took it off of site and all these other things and... You know, I think to a certain degree, there is some jockeying for position here in this situation. I mean, who's going to, who's going to, what's the pecking order going to be in the world global, global government? So, so Corbett makes that point. There could be some stuff there, but also the very idea that we need a war to make this transition happen means that somebody has to be the scapegoat and they need to be a controllable scapegoat. You can't have, you can't have a wild card in that position of scapegoat. So, because what if somebody does go off script and, and, and with that much power, i.e. nuclear weapons. So I don't know. One intriguing bit of news has been this Hunter Biden thing. 
Now, the Hunter Biden laptop stuff is just crazy. I mean, it really is. I mean, him with pictures of like girls that can't be more than 10 or 13 years old that are dressed like, I mean, prostitutes. I mean, these are these are crazy pictures of him actively engaged in pedophilia as well as smoking crack and all the other stuff. I mean, the, the fact that nobody's talking about this is just crazy, especially the story is not about Hunter Biden. The story really is about this fraud, this uh, pay for play thing in Ukraine, right? That we, not just the Burisma thing and him getting whatever it was, $80,000 a month. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars through various sort of money laundering things that were happening in Ukraine. And that there is just a lot of bodies are buried in Ukraine. So one a cynical person could say that uh, one of the reasons we have to defend Ukraine is because that's where our current president's entire sort of, I mean, the whole house of cards is in there. Speaking of house of cards, it kind of reminds me of the danger of that because uh, the, one of the seasons of house of cards, right when it was all coming out, you know, that Frank uh, killed these people. I mean, the worst of the worst stuff was about to come out. They said, hey, let's start a war, basically. So they, they brought the whole world into a war just because they were about to get found out for some of their dirty deeds and never put that past, or rather never put it past a corrupt person to send the whole country into war rather than to let those deeds come to light. And as much as, you know, you could say, well, the New World Order is in control of all these things and all this stuff is propaganda or whatever. One thing that you can be relatively sure they weren't planning on coming out was the Hunter Biden laptop. You know, it was, that's a monkey wrench in the gears of this whole situation. And it wasn't supposed to happen, I don't think. I do think that they may be weaponizing it to some extent when they don't want us looking at some other thing. Like it may be that they really don't want us looking at this lab thing in Ukraine. And so they allowed the uh, Hunter Biden thing. I mean, that may be a little too cynical. Nevertheless, I wouldn't get your hopes up that uh, anything's going to happen or anybody's going to go to jail or any justice is going to be done because that's just not the world that we live in. I mean, there's smoking guns with Dr. Fauci, for example, or the vaccines all down the line. And here's another point that I think I've made many times, but just in case I haven't here is uh, a theory that you know, we live in a age of deceit and thank you Gans for the title, but it is also true in the sense that this world is just as, we're, when we are in eternity, we'll look back mostly at just the darkness and the deceit that was prevalent in this world. And that the truth was just this thing that only really a few people ever knew and then it would just keep niching down and niching down and <laughs> until you have this very small group of people that would know the truth and it's all biblical for the most part but I, I i think that you know these people that think that oh it's going to come out one day and the world is getting better or whatever anybody that thinks that should just look at the stuff that we now have now enshrined these lies that are now so enshrined is true and we think that you know if we could just show the world the facts then we could all, you know, get past this and progress uh, uh, through it. And I think a lot of the secular world, you know, thinks that that's where we're headed. You know, eventually it has to get better because eventually the facts will all come out and everybody will agree on them. But what they don't realize is that, you know, what the Bible says is that people's hearts are blinded because they don't love the truth. They, they love their sin and they don't want to go into the light because it will reveal their darkness. The problem is their sin. 
you know, you could look at some of these people that like are super into whatever the thing is that you can't believe that people believe these days, like that are just all about it and go to their profile and look at their profile. And it's probably they're talking about every day, this sin thing that is really the thing in their life, the thing that they're, that controls them, that devotes them. Uh, and it's because of that. And maybe that's a, a hyper example of, you know, somebody having this one sort of sin that they enshrine. And it's because of that, they don't want to go to anything that approaches the light because it would reveal it. So they gladly accept all these lies, but I don't even think it has to be like this one sin. Uh, it has, to, it can just be your, your unredeemed uh, heart understands the, the nature of the light and the darkness. And they love the darkness because the light would reveal their sin. So it's really about sin. It's a spiritual thing. It's a religious thing. And that's the reason we can't have nice things because if we, if, if there was a way to explain and logically get us to truth, then we would have already done it. We would have been in Star Trek uh, uh, future a long, long time ago. But instead, we're all eating uh, engine lubricant and getting fat and dying from cancer and heart attacks and diabetes and anxiety and all the stuff that it does. Okay, let me talk a little bit about Bible prophecy. This week I've been doing a couple things. I'm about to release part 10 on the podcast feed, and the part 10 is about the rapture. I've already released it on YouTube, but basically it's just a uh, re-uploading of the Seven Preacher Problems film that I wrote and produced. And uh, so I haven't released it here on the podcast feed because it's a little redundant because I've already released it here on the podcast feed, but I thought I had better go ahead and release part 10 here, despite the fact that I've already released it on the feed, because people are, might think, you know, they're following it on the feed and they're looking for part 10, where's part 10? So I'm going to release it here probably simultaneously with this podcast. Um, anyway, so then part 11 and the final part is about Armageddon, and I can't quite figure out how much to talk about. I think I'm going to deal mostly with the timeline of Armageddon, how it occurs 30 days after the 70th week is completed, and I might go into the Mageddon Moed thing about how it's really a reference to Har Moed, the mountain of assembly, uh, and different things. And anyway, which is Jerusalem, by the way, and not Megiddo. There is no mountain in Megiddo. And we, I'll go through that in the uh, in that particular podcast. But one thing about Armageddon that had me sort of on a rabbit trail that I can't decide if I'm going to include in that or not is this idea about the angel pouring his vial on the river Euphrates to dry it up, to prepare the way for the kings of the east, uh, presumably for Armageddon. So these kings of the east need to cross the Euphrates to get to the battle of Armageddon. And this angel essentially uh, prepares them for that by drying that river up. And there's really not a lot of information about that. And, you know, the way that I do Bible study is has a lot to do with you know, checking specific Greek words and lexicons and strongs and for any other mention of them and different things. And that particular method has revealed no, no clues as to who the kings of the East can be. I think that a lot of commentaries and things that I read just assume it's like China or something like that. And, you know, I guess supposedly with good reason, you could, I, you could come up with a theory that, you know, during all the day of the Lord judgments, maybe China isn't I don't know, as affected or still has a sizable army and they need the Euphrates to be dried up. And I should say that it's not crazy that a river needs to be dried up. A lot of commentaries I've read say, oh, well, you don't need rivers to be dried up. They've got plains and stuff. Well, I don't know, after these day of the Lord judgments and I mean, the fifth trumpet is the demon scorpions and stuff like that. I don't think that people are going to, I don't know how well we might be at sticks and stones by that point. If we weren't all there before the uh, day of the Lord even started, I'm not even sure that the world that I see 
at the beginning of the day of the Lord is even the kind of world that we're dealing with now. So it's a, it's a silly argument, but nevertheless, that's what the Bible says. An army crosses the Euphrates river as because it has been dried up. But my question was, who are these Kings of the East? Does the Bible give, give us any clue? Do we have to go to geopolitics and look at the newspaper or can we figure out something in the Bible? And I came up with nothing basically. But I had an idea to check the book of Enoch. And I know Enoch, 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 you know, I think it's obviously a little bit of it is canonical. It kind of has to be right. Jude quotes from it as canonical saying that it's one of the, you know, it was the, the Enoch prophesied saying this thing. And it was about the second coming of Christ, which the book of Enoch is so interesting and it's so Christ exalting. It's a uh, very, you know, it's a little weird, you know, it's talking about angels and stuff, but none of that contradicts what the Bible says about angels. I mean, it feels like you're reading the same theology. I mean, it haven't read anything that completely contradicts it or whatever. So I'm not trying to say it's certainly canonical or whatever, but, but I mean, if you know, if you know, I mean, if you've read Enoch, you know, if you don't, you'll think I'm a heretic and that's fine, I guess. But one of the other things I was trying to figure out is Revelation 16, where it talks about the unclean spirits that look like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. These are demonic spirits that perform signs and go out to all the kings of the earth to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. So this was another thing that I figured, hey, maybe try to figure out what these frogs are doing. And it's just, it are spirits that look like frogs. And there's three of them. And, you know, any kind of spirit situation was one of the things that made me go to Enoch. Because usually that's where you, what I always think of Enoch, like Similarian to the Lord of the Rings. It, it And even though I haven't read the Similarian, my understanding of it is that it gives you all this detail about, uh, you know, things that are in the Lord of the Rings, but it's not very good of a story. And it's just a lot of information. But so anyway, try to figure that out and keep that idea about the frogs coming out of the mouths of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet as I go to Enoch here. And it says, and by the way, I should mention that Enoch is very prophetic too. Enoch talks a lot about the judgment. In fact, the, the verse that Jude quotes from Enoch is about the second coming. It's about the judgment, right? So Enoch is very focused on it. He talks a lot about it. And uh, he also talks a lot about uh, angels. So it seemed like a good fit to see if there were any word matches here. And this is what I found. Uh, and then the valley shall be filled with the elect and beloved, and the days of their lives shall be at an end. This is talking about the uh, sinners. And the days of their leading astray shall not thenceforward be reckoned. And in those days, the angels shall return, angels shall return, and hurl themselves to the east upon the Parthians and the Medes. They shall stir up the kings so that a spirit of unrest shall come upon them and they shall rouse them from their thrones that they may break forth as lions from their lairs and as hungry wolves from their flocks. And they shall go up and tread underfoot the land of his elect ones and the land of his elect ones shall be before them a threshing floor and a highway. But the city of my righteous shall be an hindrance to their horses and they shall begin to fight among themselves and the right hand shall be strong against themselves. And a man shall not know his brother nor his father, his mother, till there be no number of corpses through their slaughter, till there be no number of corpses through their slaughter and their punishment be not in vain. In those days, Sheol shall open its jaws and they shall be swallowed up therein and their destruction shall be at an end. Sheol shall devour sinners in the presence of the elect. So there's actually a lot of uh, interesting things here. This idea that in those days, the angels re will return and hurl themselves to the east 
upon the Parthians and the Medes. And this, I think, is interesting because the Parthians and the Medes are basically, um, you know, corresponding to the Persians, the Iranians, basically, as far as geographically. And it limits these kings of the East, if this is to be equated, which is a super big open question, to the kings of the East as per, you know, Daniel 11 or something like that. And I think it probably has some possibility that this is more related to Gog Magog, because Gog Magog in Revelation 20, which happens at the end of the millennium, has essentially the same stuff. And I believe that Enoch, as I've pointed out before, Enoch does talk about Gog Magog. I think that he says things that can only apply to a battle that takes place after the millennium and that is followed by uh, the eternal kingdom. I think Enoch captures that really well. And so this might be that, but there are some, and again, I've said before in my Gog Magog study that Armageddon and um, Gog Magog at the end of the millennium, they are tied together in some way. Whether I think they're kind of a near and far fulfillment. I think they are in some ways kind of the same thing, even though they are separated by at least 1000 years. So anyway, that's the first interesting thing that it, uh, if the kings of the East are the basically the Parthians and Medes, it means that they're probably not China or whatever, um, which, you know, it doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't really have any significance, but it may, it may actually interpret that, which is my, my main consideration is that it seemed odd that the Bible wouldn't tell us who those kings were and uh, that there wouldn't be any information about that. And they may have, of course, it's not the Bible, it's Enoch. But another thing that I thought was interesting was this idea that in that moment, they shall begin to fight among themselves. Now, this is something that doesn't really come up in uh, the Armageddon narrative, that part of the destruction of these kings at Armageddon and maybe Gog Magog, or maybe at the same time, I think it, uh, I think it's clear that it happens at Gog Magog, uh, which you can see in uh, Ezekiel 38, 21 and Zechariah 14, 13, in which it explicitly says that a part, I mean, certainly these guys are being destroyed by fire from heaven and it's going to be absolutely massive and there's going to be all this other stuff. But, but part of their destruction is that God makes them fight among themselves. And that is something that's being mentioned here. Now, I should say that Enoch 1 the first chapter about the watchers, that's the part that pretty much everybody considers to be, you know, definitely the ancient thing. I don't know to what degree this section in chapter 56 is agreed to be, uh, uh, you know, authoritative. I get the impression that it is, but most things that you'll read about Enoch say, oh, no, they'll say the whole thing is a pseudepigraphal writing that Enoch didn't write it and all this other stuff. But again, you got Jude saying Enoch wrote at least the first part. Uh, I think Heiser, uh, who has written a companion thing to Enoch, Dr. Michael Heiser, I think he comes down on the more is authority, in, including this section, than, than uh, a lot of people would say. And I do know that from reading the Church Fathers that they would quote these sections as well as the earlier parts. So it seems that the Church Fathers had some sort of inclination that uh, these were authoritative. Uh, and it was interesting that they didn't. They spoke of them kind of the same way that I spoke of them. In fact, I think there's a paper that's written about how the church fathers interact with Enoch and they they basically give the same caveats I get. You know, it's not canonical, but it sure does seem like it was and Enoch and Jude certainly quotes from it and stuff. So they they, they put all these caveats, but they certainly felt like it was in, informative in those places where uh, the Bible was less verbose, particularly about these angel issues or whatever. Um, 
so anyway, I thought that was interesting that, uh, and then of course it, it concludes with the day that Sheol opens his jaws and it could be a, a completely moot point because if it is a pseudepigraphal writing, then this could have been written after the book of Revelation was written. And I don't really know enough to know that because I don't know, again, I, I know that Enoch, the first part about the watchers is definitely an ancient inscription. I mean, I think it was probably the first prophecy that was ever recorded uh, by Enoch. I mean, he was a grandfather of Noah uh, who was writing about, you know, the, the end of time among other things. All right, I guess that's it. But remember the leaky gut stuff. Remember the seed oil, vegetable oil stuff. I'll put all this in the show notes. It should be in your podcatcher. You should be able to scroll down and find some of these link links, especially to the YouTube vegetable oil stuff. Remember, you can go to Bible Prophecy Archive. You can request a thumb drive for that uh, database with all this Bible prophecy information in case the internet goes kaput. Um, okay, we'll see you next time. Bye.